0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue our study through Romans, and you can join us by turning in your Bibles to chapter 8, verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, No Condemnation. Waiting for, we begin Romans chapter 8 this morning. Um, We could just read the first verse because that's all the farther we're going to make it, but part of what I want to do today is take the time to introduce the whole chapter. This is a whole section. So we're going to read the whole thing. Before we do, let me kind of show you some of the divisions of what to look for. In the first four verses, we have a reminder. A quick reminder in four verses of much of what we've studied, what Jesus has accomplished to bring salvation to all who turn to Christ. So justification, that's the big word we've been, we've seen the Bible use. And then in verses four through 27, we see a section. This is the last instruction on sanctification. The other big word uh, of the process where a Christian is day by day being transformed. So first comes the instant of being made right with God upon the moment of turning to Christ. That's justification. Then sanctification, this work throughout life of growing in Christ. And so the last that we're going to learn about that is in verses four to 27. And then in 28 to 30, we've got this kind of overview, this glorious statement of overview of all that we've looked at. Justification, sanctification, And then what we will be learning about glorification when we come into God's presence, his work is finished. And then that leads to this great hymn of rejoicing in verses 31 to 39. 31 to 39 is the point that the whole text is moving towards. So let's start in verse one. We'll read it and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. So please follow along. Therefore, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, So then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, also, the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a daunting thing to come to this big chapter Uh, Lord, we have been expectantly waiting to get to come and study this one and we are delighted to do so. But Lord, there's a a feeling of we're not worthy to do so. Who are we to get to even get to look at these things? Father, I know that by the time that we're done with them, we will not have mastered them and we will not know them to the depths. But Lord, we ask for grace. I ask God that you'll show us your truths. Father, I, I pray that Today and then week after week as we keep studying uh, these, this passage and these truths, God, that you'll open our eyes and lead us to comprehend. Protect us from error. Protect us, oh God, from um, negligence. Lord, give us grace that we will honestly and humbly come to your word. And Father, we pray you show us your truths and we pray your truths will transform us. Father, give me help um, to preach and show the truths that are here and to do it with clarity, set a guard over my mouth so I don't say anything wrong or foolish or that would be harmful in any way, oh God. Just truth and truth only. And by your spirit, oh God, lead us to respond rightly to your sons and daughters in the room that have turned to Christ. Lord, I pray that you will bring us to the appropriate worship. Lord, responding rightly. But Lord, any in the room that has not yet bowed the knee to Christ, not yet turned, God, we pray that you will bring the grace, that you will open eyes to see and draw them to yourself, O Lord. So Father, please protect and bless this time. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night before he went to the cross, it was a busy night with a lot that was happening on that night. We see that a great deal of the time that Jesus spent was praying to the father. And you can look at passages like John 17, which we bring up from time to time. And in John 17, you've got this whole chapter where Jesus prays for all believers down through the ages. And you get to see what your savior prayed for you. It's a phenomenal passage. There's another place where we see something else that Jesus prayed on that night as well. Jesus prayed to the father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. I believe Jesus prayed that mostly for our benefit. There's no other way we would understand the, the turmoil that was going on within him as he knew the torture that was about to happen there. Jesus knew where this was heading. He knew the torture he would suffer at the hands of men, but infinitely more significant. There was more happening in the heavenly realm than any eyes could see. Jesus would bear the wrath of the Father on behalf of all of those who would turn to Christ in faith. This is what Jesus joyfully agreed to before the world was made. And so when he prayed that prayer, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What did he mean by the cup? What was that language about? Well, Jesus was referring to one of the, and and there are hundreds of these um, poetic metaphors from the Bible Especially in the Old Testament, there will be these poetic metaphors that are used in order to to help us understand something. And then we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. There are quite a few places like in Psalm 75, where the wrath of God that is going to be executed, that is going to be given to all of those who refuse to bow the knee to God's rule who refuse to submit to him, the wrath that's going to be poured out is likened to a a cup of wine. So Psalm 75 says that in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's a, that's kind of a poetic way of saying that God is going to execute justice. He's going to deal with lawbreakers and Every single one of us, we are all lawbreakers and this would be the cup that we would drink from were it not for God making a way for us to avert that, to be spared from that. There's not a literal cup that's a figurative way of speaking that he's going to act in his wrath. By the way, this comes up in the book of Revelation as well. When God gives us this picture of the, the final judgment that's going to come at the end, he, he speaks of Babylon, which metaphorically represents the, the city of man, the, those who are obstinate and refuse to submit to the Lord. He says that he makes her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So when Jesus spoke of the cup, this is what he was talking about. It's the cup that holds the condemnation from God. On the cross, infinitely more was happening than what man could see. The Bible employs a lot of metaphors to to try to help us understand what was happening and this is another. Jesus took the cup from the Father The cup that was well mixed with the wine of the fury of his wrath, and for you who are in Christ, a cup that had your name written on it. And he took it on your behalf and drank it himself, drained it to its dregs, turned it over, and said, It is finished. Now, I say this as well and understand that I don't say this with, with gladness. It doesn't give me pleasure to say this part. But just as a doctor also has to deliver bad news because we have to deal with it. I, I say to you that if you have not turned to Christ... If you have been resisting either to fully submit or you hear about this whole saved thing and you kind of chuckle and mock it and think that, you know, we're kind of crazy because we're taking this religion thing overboard and we don't really need that kind of thing. If you have refused to come to Christ in the way that he says, you have to understand that there is a cup with your name written on it. It is a cup from the hand of God, well mixed with the wrath, the condemnation that is going to come to you. It is going to be drained one way or the other. It will either be that by turning to Christ, Jesus's draining of the cup is counted as yours, or you will drink it yourself, but one way or the other, the justice that your law breaking deserves is going to be condemned. Condemned. The glory of the gospel, which is to say the good news of the salvation that God has accomplished, what makes it so great is that for all who are in Christ, here's one of the great hymns uh, that Wesley wrote. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for you? Romans 8 is called by some the most glorious chapter in the Bible. Uh, When we began this book together and I told you how giddy I was to go through this, a great part of my giddiness was we eventually get to come to chapter eight. And here we are this morning. Um, But one of the things that we do need to know about it is, you know, we've taken a lot of time to work through difficult doctrine. And I mean difficult, not only like mentally, like there are times we left here on Sundays with a headache because this is a complex argument that is being built, but it's also a lot of difficult truth to swallow. God says a lot of things that destroy our ego and the pride of our hearts. We've worked through seven chapters of this logical argument and really we won't be able to appreciate Won't be able to appreciate the glories of chapter eight unless we have studied those things and see it for what it is. And we might just never leave chapter eight, might just stay here for quite some time. Actually, Spurgeon said, as a Christian, we live our entire lives in chapter seven and chapter eight. You know, when we saw chapter seven, what we, what we looked at is the lamenting of sin, that struggle of the indwelling sin that lives in us. But chapter eight is all about, but at the same time, while we struggle and we have grief over the sin that remains in us, yet we have this confidence, this singing of joy, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me give a little bit of the, the introduction to this chapter. You know, usually when we begin a new section, uh, we spend a little bit more time introducing it because part of what I want to do is show you the way that the whole argument fits together so we don't lose track. Because there is in the first 11 chapters, there's a complex logical argument that is being laid out. And occasionally even the text comes and gives us a little refresher of like, okay, remember this back here and then takes that truth and builds on it some more. So Romans 8 has its own sort of summarizing of some of the point that's there. The gospel is meant, the good news of what Christ has done to save souls, the gospel is meant first and foremost to save us, to bring us to be right with God. But after this... God intends for the gospel that as we continue to grow in our knowledge of it, as we continue to meditate on it, God intends for it to transform us and He intends for it to bring us to worship Him in response with great gratitude, rejoicing in just what He has done for us. Well, chapter 8 is primarily aimed at bringing us to worship and specifically to worship in joy. So, so understand this, when we meditate on chapter seven, which had a lot of hard stuff about our sin that remains and we, we grieve our sin, we lament over our sin, we are engaging in worship. When we have grief over our sin, when we confess that, when we repent, it doesn't feel real good, but it's worship. We're bowing before God, but there is also a worship that comes in when we are, it's just your heart sings, when your heart sings in joy and there is this overflowing, exulting in what God has done, chapter eight is aimed at bringing us to worship in that joy by rejoicing in the benefits that we have in Christ. But we won't understand that until we first understand one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. But here's what's happening in chapter eight. Uh, Not going to lie, chapter eight is a little bit tough to outline. And the reason is not so much because any of the verses are all that difficult to understand. Um, Really, all the verses are not that difficult. I mean, don't don't misunderstand. There's depth. (laughs) Like there are entire books written on specific verses in chapter eight. We're never going to master chapter eight. But it's pretty straightforward to understand, at least at a surface level, the difficulty is not so much in that. It's that there are so many big truths all weaving together. It's which one is the main idea? Which of these is the big theme that's there? So let me show you what I believe is the the central idea and rest assured we are in agreement with great believers, scholars, preachers who have come before us in this. I believe the central idea the main thing that God is leading us to see in chapter 8 is to glory in our salvation and respond rightly to glory in what God has done with exceeding joy and respond to it rightly there are a number of applications that God wants to apply in this. And it's not just, you know, the most obvious one is, yay, be happy. Okay. That, that's a good one. Okay. But that's not all. Because there at the end, part of the way God, God applies this is when your head is about to be cut off for persecution, you're okay. It's not tragedy bear confidence and courage on the day of your death, death, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There are a number of ways that God means to apply this of the glory of the gospel. So we work through the whole chapter um, in this and verses 31 to 39 is this great hymn of rejoicing where it's all working towards. So to do that, to get to 31 to 39 and finishing it out, here's kind of how it divides. I mentioned a little bit of it. Let me show it to you again. I've got chapter 8 divided into four parts. First four verses is a reminder, it's saying in another way things we've already seen Jesus' atonement, the work that he made to accomplish redemption, our justification. And then it moves into the last bit of instruction on the sanctification part. There's there are some truths we've not yet seen about the Holy Spirit's work in our sanctification growing in Christ. And then in verses 28 to 30, we've got this great summing up of the previous uh, seven and a half chapters and then comes 31 to 39, which is this hymn of rejoicing in Christ. So as we go through the weeks, I'll be reminding you and showing you what each of them are. We're going to start in point number one, no condemnation. And today we're specifically meditating on verse one. So as we've already said, as we were finishing up chapter seven, Romans 8.1 is just one of the greatest sentences ever uttered in history. But really, what it is doing is saying just in different language truths that we have already seen. When the Bible showed us that we are justified in Christ, what that means is we, we were given this list of things that have happened legal, technical uh, things that have gone down in the heavenly realm. There are ways we have been attached to God that we can't see with our physical eyes. There's this list of benefits. And another one of these is in Romans 8:1. Another way of saying all of that, you've been made right with God. You've been cleansed and pardoned. You now are at peace with God. Another way of saying that and clearing it up is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Begins with therefore. Now you've probably heard before as you're studying the Bible, every time you encounter the word therefore in the Bible, you're supposed to pause and say, what's the therefore? Therefore, because it's meant to be a connecting kind of word there. Now, as we were going through chapter seven and we we came to the end of that section, which was Paul lamenting and groaning, who will set me free from the body of this death? We saw the way it just very naturally flows into while we have this grief, we also have this hope, this joy of what is to come. There's a very natural transition to chapter eight, verse one. While that is the case, this therefore is also meant to be a big summary of everything that has come from chapter one, verse one. This therefore is looking back on the argument we've seen going all the way back to the first verse, working its way all the way up to right now. Therefore, here are some conclusions. Here is the big conclusion. And he uses that then to set up what will come next. This foundational truth is then built upon. And, Notice the beauty of the language that's there. And by the way, yeah, even in the original, there is this emphasis, a a double emphasis that's put there. Therefore, there is now. You know, if the text had just said, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that would be a powerful statement. If the text had just said now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That would also be a powerful statement. But the putting of these two things together is like a way of putting an exclamation point to these things. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's meant to be a bold statement. Christian, this is meant by God to be one of those verses that we say so many times in our life that it gets ingrained into our thinking. If the way that you die is that you are on your deathbed and your mental faculties have largely deteriorated and you are, in pre- you are in pain and you know you are coming to the moment that you will pass out of this life and your brain's not working as it once did, there is still a line that you can repeat until your last breath. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the verse that has encouraged martyrs as they marched to be burned at the stake. Why could they smile? Why could they sing? Why do we even have accounts? One of my favorites is of a wife who jumped into the way of her husband as he was marching to be burned at the stake and she applauded him, proud of him for his courage. What gives believers that? There's no condemnation in Christ. And if there is no condemnation, who can hurt you? Who can touch you? There is no sickness. There is no earthly tragedy. There is no COVID that can affect you eternally. What can touch you? If you are confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, it is meant to make us sing. Sing in gratitude, but not just jolly skipping around. There's a kind of joy that makes you serious. There's a kind of joy that puts a glint in your eye and sets your face like flint, willing to march to persecution. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verse continues, therefore there is now. It's almost like the text is saying at long last, after all that the world has endured, after all of the years of sacrifices... After all of the waiting to see what God was doing and how He would bring about this redemption at last, at long last, His salvation is revealed. The plot line of the Bible is fulfilled in Christ, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, as God was speaking the words of the curse. Even in the midst of that curse, God spoke the hope of promise, what we call the, the, first, the first glimpse of the gospel in all of the Bible in chapter three, that there would come the seed of a woman who would somehow fix what's been broken here. The, the plot line of the Bible is God unfolding in a progressive revelation how it was that he was going to bring about this redemption. At long last, it's revealed in Christ. Ephesians 1 talks about the great summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. The New Testament speaks of the mysteries kept secret for ages now revealed in Christ. God has orchestrated all of history and the point of all of this world is summed up in His Son. At long last... It's now revealed. There is now no condemnation. Now don't misunderstand, the believers in the Old Testament they were brought into heaven by being forgiven of their sins made right with God. Abraham, for instance. Abraham was saved by Jesus, but he didn't know he was saved by Jesus. Abraham was saved by Jesus before Jesus had even come to the earth. He was saved based on the future work of Christ at that time. Christ has come to drink the cup for all, past, present, and future in this history as we understand it, of all who come to him. But now it's been revealed. It's been revealed that now there is no condemnation. You know, this is one of the most important words we got to talk about in this passage. This word condemnation, you've probably already picked up and probably already knew before you came in the room this morning. It's a word that speaks to ultimate penalty. The ultimate sentencing. The Latin word that is used here is damnitio. It's where we get our word damnation. And and I know that, you you know, today, now that there's been a progress of history, you may think of that as a cuss word, but let me tell you how it came about. The word cuss comes from curse word. And a curse word originally was a cruel statement that somebody would make to another in a hateful kind of way. So if you think about it, what's the worst possible thing you could say to somebody? I mean, really, what is the worst, most hateful possible thing you could say to somebody? This is gonna sound like a profane statement, but I'm telling you, this is, this is where it came from. The worst thing you could say to somebody is, damn you. Because it is communicating, I want you to spend eternity in hell. It's the worst possible curse you could give. That's the power of the word here. Condemnation is the ultimate penalty. It is damnation. So there are a couple other words. That maybe this will kind of help us think about it. The Bible shows us that God will send judgments to the world. And these judgments will be uh, temporary acts where his anger over evil results in him sending a punishment, executing justice, humbling people, bringing retribution. But these earthly judgments, they are not a final kind of eternal penalty. There's not a finality to it, to the Christian The Bible tells us that if you are in Christ, we are to expect discipline, that we're told that whenever God disciplines us, he's doing it not out of hatred, not out of cruelty. He's doing it as a father spanks his child out of love because this is for our good. This is what forms our character. God's discipline for us is to keep us from falling away from him. So the word condemnation is is different from those two acts of God. The the temporal judgments or the the discipline. Condemnation is one of the words that the Bible uses to speak of a final and ultimate sentence of eternal penalty. Penalty. And of course, I don't have to tell you that the majority of the world, the masses don't even want to believe that this even exists. The masses of the world just want to ignore these things, take the Bible and take Jesus and twist and mold him into their own image. Even in this recent season that we're in right now, we've heard all the voices saying things like, you know, that what America is experiencing right now, well, this can't be judgment because God would never do that. You know, God is just all about, you know, rainbows and unicorns. You know, we even heard the voices of preachers. So, you know, none of this is judgment. God never does anything that's painful. God's only just always working for your, just your happiness, your pleasure. Which, of course, you can't read three consecutive pages of the Bible without seeing the God in his holiness hates sin and acts. And while God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, he will act in justice because it is what is right and it is what is to be done. This religion invented by the minds of men is, it is an insult to God. He's not cruel, but he is fiercely just. He disciplines his people he judges in temporary ways. And there really is a condemnation. And if you reject Christ, you really are going to receive it. And I know that we can kind of think of that whole rejection of, you know, all unpleasant things as, as a modern thing. But a century and a half ago, when Charles Spurgeon was preaching to his congregation, he had to talk about the exact same things. And he talked about to his congregation that this idea it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Satan came and tempted Eve and she said that in the day we eat of the fruit, we will surely die. Do you remember what Satan responded? You surely will not die. It's like one of the original tempting thoughts to not believe that God's ever actually gonna go through with something so hard. I mean, surely I'm a great person. Surely God would never be unhappy with me. Listen, God from heaven a spoken, he's spoken and he tells us there is a condemnation. He tells us there is judgment, there is discipline and there is a kind of judgment of finality if we refuse to bow the knee to him. In Matthew 10, Jesus was preaching on what it means to truly be a disciple. He tells us not to fear man. He says, what can mere man do to you? Kind of like the end of Romans 8, we think immediately quite a bit, God, that's kind of a scary thought. What can man do to me? But Jesus preaches so that we don't look just 15 minutes in front of our face, but that we comprehend the length of eternity. And in that passage, one of the things Jesus said was, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Look, you got to know. You got to know that this is what sinful humans deserve. The message of the Bible is that fallen mankind, the rebellious state that we are born into results in a kind of life where we disregard him. We live as we please and it is going to result in condemnation if we miss what God has provided. Listen, you are not inherently a good person. No matter how much you hear all the voices in the world, you are not inherently right with God because you can think of good deeds you have done. John 3.18 says, speaking of Jesus, it says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why does the Bible say that if you do not believe, you are judged already? It's because the state that we live in, our natural state is a way of life, a way of thinking, an attitude that disregards the rule of God. And look, I I get it. You know, we're thankful that every single week we've got uh, folks who are new to studying the Bible. If you are new to studying the Bible, this is one of the first places that you'll have a hang up because the prideful heart doesn't want to believe it. This is contrary to all the voices of all of the masses that are there. I remember being a kid and hearing this for the first time and being like, that's not what I've heard every week. This is one of the first places that you're gonna have a hurdle to believing God. He says, you're not okay. But look at the words of scripture. If you do not turn to Christ... You are already under the dark tempest of his disfavor and you will receive condemnation. The whole point of the gospel, why we need the gospel, why we needed Jesus to come is that God has made a way for us to escape the condemnation that we all would face. And and, and listen, the world is always trying to take the parts of the Bible that it likes because it's undeniable. There is a lot of beauty in the scriptures, even by those who want to reject most of it. And so the gospel according to the world, the way they like to twist and manipulate Jesus is to take Romans 8, 1 and to rephrase it. And basically what it says is, there is no condemnation, scratch out all the rest. It's not what the text says. There is no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the only way of escape. The escape of condemnation comes by being in Christ. And the way that we escape that condemnation is, if you look to verse three, what's said there, God did condemn sin. He did condemn it. God didn't just decide not to condemn sin. If he did that, it would have been unrighteous, like a wicked judge who refused to carry out justice. God did condemn sin, but how did he do it? Jesus took the condemnation onto himself on behalf of all who come to him. An illustration we've used in the past, the arrow of God's wrath was fixed to his bow he drew back and fired that arrow. It was heading towards your heart. The arrow of condemnation was heading to you. Jesus has stepped in front of you and taken it into himself. But one way or other, the other, the arrow is being fired. Justice will be accomplished. It will either sink into you or into Christ, counted as yours. For those who turn to Christ... We escape condemnation and instead receive the opposite. What is the opposite of condemnation? That's what justification is. Justification is to be declared not guilty. Condemnation is to be sentenced as guilty. Condemnation will receive justice. No condemnation means we escape the justice that we deserve. Condemnation means there is an eternal sentence of misery. No condemnation means there is an eternal gift of bliss brought into the joy of our master. And this is for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've talked already in the book of Romans about this union with Christ. That by turning to Christ in faith, we, you know, we don't just become like acquaintances or light friends. There is actually a union where we are joined with him as marriage is a union. And actually we're told in the Bible that marriage was given by God to be an illustration of something more important than marriage. Yes, your union with Christ eternal is a covenant relationship that we will be in him, in relationship, in this covenant for all of eternity, in this worshiping relationship, God with his sons and daughters, the people bought by the blood of Christ. Christian, we need to know deeply the fact that we deserve condemnation. We're not going to see the beauty of the gospel until we comprehend this deeply. Does your soul ache at the thought? The Christian will have trials, but no condemnation. The Christian will have pain, but no condemnation. The promise of God is is not that we will escape earthly difficulties. No, we're promised earthly difficulties. In fact, the end of this chapter talks about believers being slaughtered as sheep on the earth. You will not escape earthly difficulty, but there is no condemnation. Christian, let's take this verse and ingrain it into our thinking. You know, memorizing passages of the Bible is a, it's a life transforming work. If you've not done it in the past, there's these list of individual verses we need to commit to memory you know, things like John 3:16, Romans 3:23. Make this one of them. Make this one of them that we repeat over and over throughout our lives until it, it stirs our hearts to sing. When you are in the slew of despond, wrestling with the darkness, remind yourselves of this verse. There's no condemnation and God is for you. And let's ingrain it to the point that when we lie on our deathbed, And we can't think of anything else. There's at least one verse coming to our minds over and over again. There is no condemnation for me who is in Christ. God means this to minister to us, to strengthen us in a number of ways, confidence, joy, worship, and courage. And to you who are not yet in him, I, I want to make the appeal to you. Would would you please? Your soul is worth it. I, I ask you to give, even if it's only ten minutes, to contemplating eternity. Contemplating the length of eternity and what it would mean if you were condemned for eternity. Contemplate it. If it would see the answer that God in mercy has provided. All of these hard things that we've said today, l- listen, we don't say these kinds of things because we're you know, grumpy and we like to talk about mean fire and brimstone. Like that's, that's not the issue. But the reality is just like a doctor would walk in the room and say, you know, it doesn't make me happiness to tell you this, but you got cancer. God speaks from heaven and says, it doesn't give, make me happiness to say this, but you're dead in your sins. But I made a way of forgiveness. Come. The invitation of Christ is to come, come and drink. Come and drink the cup, not of wrath, but of his grace. Come enter the gates of the kingdom. Come walk into the grace that God offers to you. Come and receive my rest. Come and enter the joy of your master. Look to Christ. Cry out to Christ for mercy. Mercy. Even where you sit right now, you could be converted in the next instant. Listen, listen, the way you are justified is not leave here and go out and try to, try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go be good. That's not it. The first moment is call out to him now in your heart. God, save me. And in an instant, you could be made new, justified. Then the work begins. See, God doesn't say, make yourself right and then I'll accept you. God says, come right now. I'll give you mercy, accept you now. And then we'll go to work. Then we'll bring transformation. But first comes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look to him in faith. And if you want to ask some questions about that, the invitation I give, like this is always out there. You want to ask questions, talk with somebody, look at more at scripture. Come find me after the service. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we thank you for what you have done in Christ. We worship you today and we will worship you every Lord's day of our lives, every day of our lives and God through all of eternity. Father, we want to somehow, somehow live in a way that expresses the gratitude that we have. So Father, help us to do that. We're going to leave here right now. Give us grace that we will now live in obedience serve and be useful and Father that you'll use us and I pray for any in the room that's not yet trusted in Christ please do not leave them alone draw them to yourself please bless us God and we ask all this in Christ's name amen God dismissed. thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this week's message Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at True Vine, I-N-D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.